Good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this since uh, your pastor invited me a few months back to, to be with you. And uh, we were here for some other reasons, but this was the highlight is to be with you. My wife looked over at me just a few minutes ago and said, they're fun and you are fun. And so we, we've been encouraged by you this morning. We've been encouraged by your spirit, um, by your singing, encouraged by your praying, the way that you obviously care for one another. And so you've, you've ministered to us uh, already this morning. Um, your, your pastor um, changed up his description of our relationship in the second service from the first service. Um, in the first service, he said we walked ha- arm in arm or hand in hand. And so in the second service, he said we're just walking together. I prefer the second one over the first one. Um, but it is a it is a delight to be able to uh, to work through that process with him, and um, and it's been a lot of fun to get to know him and be an encouragement to him. So, um, with this morning we're in Matthew seven, um, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Which, if you have been around a bit, uh, been in and out of church, um, you're familiar with this text. It's maybe the first time some of you have been introduced to it. Uh, we're gonna walk through this this passage here in just a few minutes. Let me read it to us. Uh, I want you to hear it. Uh, then my conviction of preaching is, uh, is a, the same conviction I have when those scriptures are read. That the number one thing for us to do is to hear the word. It's to hear it. And the reason that's my conviction of preaching is this. Is because I believe this is the word of God for the people of God. And God does his work through his word. So we might do explanation. We do application. We do... We unpack it, but it's all for the central purpose for you and for me to hear our Savior speak to us through the word that he inspired for us. Listen as I read. Matthew chapter 7, picking up in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse. Because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the conclusion. And Jesus has, has been teaching from chapter five, verse three, and we come to the conclusion in chapter 7. It's really interesting to me that Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, that this, is, this material is on the, on the front side of the gospel. And we, haven't, we haven't gotten far, really. We've had the prophecy of the Messiah to come, uh, the lineage of the Messiah, uh, the description to Mary and to, to Joseph about this one who is to come. He, he comes. He is uh, visited by the Magi. 
and then he grows up, and he's baptized, and here we are. This is the most extensive teaching in all the New Testament from Jesus recorded. Some people wonder if this was a, a one episode of teaching. Was this an extended teaching time? Uh, it's an extended sermon, or is this a collection of sermons from Jesus that Matthew put together as he's writing the gospel? People sort of think about that. They question that. They wonder that. And what we do know is that when the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Matthew, he inspired it to be written together like this. And I think he inspires us. He intends for us to read it together. It's in this moment that Jesus steps into the grand story of redemption. He, he goes to the mountain. The mountain gives you the imagery of Moses who went to the mountain to stand before God and his people and to instruct them as his people's leader. And he, we're told in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, that's where he goes. He goes to the top of the mountain and gathers his disciples around him and begins to speak. It's in this moment where he's teaching chapter 5 and 6 and 7 that he steps into those Old Testament offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He steps into the office of the prophet as the prophet is the one who is the mouthpiece of God for God's people to teach and instruct. And he steps into that office and he begins to teach. The difference here is the prophet said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus doesn't say that. He just begins to teach. He steps into that office of priest. The priest served that role as the mediator between God and his people. The one who would intercede. And he intercedes. A passage this morning says, in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. He steps into the role of priest as the one who is mediating the Word of God for the people of God and leading God's people. He steps in the, that office of king. As this text, the Sermon on the Mount, is a kingdom text where he's proclaiming to them about a kingdom and what does it mean to live in light of the kingdom. In fact, an overview of the sermon could be broken up into three sections. The first section Chapter 5, verse 3 through 16, tells us about the subjects of the kingdom. It starts off with, blessed are those fill in the blank. These are the members of the kingdom. Those who are blessed and those who have these qualities. They're peacemakers and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they're meek. Ones who endure persevere, uh, suffering and persevere. Chapter 5, verse 17 through seven twelve is the second section of the sermon where he talks about the truths of the kingdom. And this is where he deals with some of the ethics of the kingdom. Talks about uh, murder and adultery and divorce. How it is we're to forgive other people and to love. How we're supposed to pray and fast. What are we supposed to do with our possessions? What do we do with our anxieties? How are we to look at other people? And how are we to approach God? It's the truth of the kingdom. And in this last section, picking up in verse 13 of chapter 7, he talks about the way of entering the kingdom. 
the way of entering the kingdom. The audience of the sermon begins with him going to the mountain and gathering his disciples around him. It seems like a fairly small group, but by the end of the sermon, it either the group grew or he didn't refer to him at the beginning. So you see at the end of this sermon, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. So it must have been a crowd. Or in verse 28, when Jesus had finished these things, the crowds, not just the crowd, the crowds, plural crowds. We don't know how many people were gathering around to hear him proclaim this message, but we know that the audience was large. And guess what? This morning, you and I are in the audience. And the question for me and for you this morning is, have we come to posture ourselves to be among the audience this morning? Is that our desire is to hear the word of the Lord this morning from the mouth of the Lord? As I said, this ending part here where we're dealing with this morning deals with the way of entering into the kingdom. So the final portions that set up this dichotomy and it gives the audience a choice. In chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, it says, you must enter the kingdom through the narrow gate. In chapter 7, 15 to 23, it says, you must be like a tree who bears fruit. And in chapter 7, 24 to 27, it says, you must build your house on a rock. The imagery in all of these, the point is that there's one direction. The kingdom will be populated by those who live with an audience of one. Is our allegiance defined and set? Has our hope been cast in one direction? The enter in the kingdom of those who have an audience of one, who've set their hope in one direction, whose allegiance is in one direction, who build their lives on one message. The sermon primarily, Sermon on the Mount primarily instructs us on how we are to see our lives before God. How we're to live before Him. And what does it mean for us to live and give our to, to, to live with a kingdom perspective? I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son. Uh, they are the delight of mine and Amy's life. We have so much fun with them. Uh, we've really enjoyed the teenage years. Uh, they are not with us. They're away. And we've been texting with them over the last couple of days. And even as we drove up into the parking lot this morning, we looked at each other and said, we have good kids. And we do. We have good kids. My daughter's 15. She's just gotten her learner's permit. And so some of you parents who know and have trained your kids to drive, you know what we're going through. I think it's only been a couple of weeks, and we probably have only been out driving six or seven times. And I've already begun to identify a tendency in her driving habits. And uh, we've already started talking about it. She has this tendency that she only pays attention to where she's going. And you may think, well, that's a good thing. She's paying attention to where she's going. But what I mean is where she's going. She puts blinders on. So when she's turning left, she's only looking left. When she's going straight, she's only going straight. And I'm trying to teach her to get a broader perspective, a broader view. The, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we were driving, and we came to a four-way stop. My wife heard about this story for the first time in the first service. Um, 
there was an audible gasp. Um, we came to a four-way stop. She was the first one at the stop. I said, you have the right of way. Another car approached the stop on the other side. And we were taking a left-hand turn to go to the grocery store. And she begins her left-hand turn. And the car on the other side begins to come forward. She, has, she doesn't see him. She's looking left. She's looking up the road. She's not paying attention in front of her anymore. I honk the horn and holler and the lady stops and we're all okay. But she has this tendency to only look to where she's going. I think there's a tendency when we read the Sermon on the Mount to read it in a similar kind of way. We look at the verse that we're reading at the moment. We look at the paragraph that we're reading at the moment. And this is what we do, and this is how we read it. We ask the question, what rules should I keep? And I'm not convinced that's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. And it's not the primary question for you and for me when we read it. That doesn't mean it's not to instruct us on how to, we, to live our lives. But that's not the primary purpose. As a matter of fact, that's a too narrow view. The Sermon on the Mount is trying to give us a broader perspective. Some ways of reading the Sermon on the Mount or some keys to reading and understanding it. Maybe to start with where it starts, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. It means the happier those, fulfilled are those, satisfied are those. Flourishing are those. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to the good life. It's an invitation to a life under a king who's generous and gracious and who is powerful and strong and is all-knowing. And to live underneath his reign and rule, it's an invitation to the good life. It's not just about what rules to keep. Or Matthew 5, 17, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This idea here is, tells us that it's not about what we fulfill, it's about what he's fulfilled for us. He's fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. We live under his reign and rule because of who he is. Or Matthew 6, 9 through 10, right before the instructions on how to pray, it says don't be like the hypocrites. And what was the big part of the hypocrites? Yes, it was that they prayed to be heard by others, but they prayed to be heard by others solely. Jesus says don't be like them. Be like those who know their Heavenly Father is good and desires to give good things to them. The problem with the hypocrites is that the public prayer was it, full stop. Prayer is praying to God. And then He teaches us how to pray, which is very interesting in this middle of the sermon that He teaches us how to pray. And it tells us our posture should be about dependence and not should be about performance. Or Matthew 6, 21 it's another key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is about how we are building our lives and on whom we are building our lives. So are we building our lives on the Word? The Christ, the Messiah. He's saying here that the wise are those who live in light of the word and its promises. The wise are those that know that the words point to me. 
It's for this reason that Matthew writes, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of the Father in heaven. Only those. Because those who know that their lives depend on me and those who know that they're to give themselves to following me and living under my reign and my rule. So when Jesus comes to the conclusion of this sermon, he does give a narrow way and a wide way and he talks about the good tree and the bad tree. And he talks about the, the wise and the foolish. But he says it's not merely enough to call him Lord and to listen to his teaching because, because he wants us to come to him and depend upon him. So Jesus confronts us with himself in this text. He calls us to unconditional commitment, mind, heart, and life. To his teaching. When our kids were younger, like two and three, uh, at the breakfast table every morning, Amy would go through a little bit of a ritual with them. She'd ask them a couple of questions. They'd read a proverb and she'd ask the same question every day. Um, and she would read a proverb about the foolish and the wise. And she would finish, she said, Do you want to be foolish? And the answer is obvious no. Do you want to be wise? Yes. Who makes you wise? God. How? Through Jesus. And that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. The wise are not those who just discovered the path, found the secret, understood things the fastest. But those who know the one who himself is wisdom. In this text, I want you to see that there are things that are similar about the two ways. There are things that are different about the two ways. And there's something that's significant that makes them different. The things that are similar about the two ways. Look at me in the text. It's, it's quite obvious. And when you read the text, there's something that's repeated. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded the house. Verse 25. Verse 27. And the rivers, and the rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house. And both the wise and the foolish, we see a storm comes for both of these. It's, and it's, it, it, we're told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that the sun and the rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is a sign of blessing. And here in this text, we're told that the Rain comes, the rivers rise, the wind blows and pounds the house. This is not about blessing. This is about hardship. This is about difficulties. And there are all sorts of seasons in our lives where we face various types of hardships. Some of you today may be facing hardships, health concerns, financial concerns, relational pressures. Uncertainties about future decisions. Questions about your faith. About the authenticity of the message. About the assurance of Christ. There are times in our lives we face all sorts of hardships. And, and this text definitely does instruct us on how to walk through those. But this text is not about that hardship. The storm he's referring to here is eschatological judgment. 
And he says, all people one day will stand before the Lord and be judged. How do we know that? Because in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who, who does the will of my Father in heaven. We know that this whole passage up to this point has been about who enters the kingdom. We also know it because throughout the Scriptures, it's the imagery of storm that communicates and gets at this notion of eschatological judgment. So Jeremiah 23, verse 19 to 20, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth in a swirling tempest, and it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he's executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the later days, we'll, you will understand it clearly. You find similar imagery in Jeremiah 25, verse 32, or Isaiah 28, 16 to 22, or Ezekiel 13, 10 to 16. We also see it in the New Testament, and you see a passage like this in Matthew 24, picking up in verse 36, 37. Now concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. This is the way of the coming of the Son of Man will be. So this passage here is primarily about eschatological judgment. It's about the day that you and I will stand before our Lord and Maker and give an account for our lives. And it's about whether we have lives that will stand the test in that moment or whether we have lives and that will collapse in the moment. That's what the text is primarily about. And I have good news for you this morning. If those of you who walked in this room this morning and you know you're outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't know God, you're pursuing your faith, it's the one who's proclaiming this message in the book of Matthew he came and died in order to restore your life. You're facing a storm and, you've, and you know that there are challenges in your life and you begin to feel collapse happening. It's not too late. And even as he's proclaiming this sermon, he's calling you to himself to find refuge under his kingship. So that you will have a house that when the storm comes, it will not collapse. The reality is, whether it's the foolish man or the wise man, the reality is this, both will face the storm. The things that are different we see in the text, the differences between the two, I could give a pop quiz right now. I could get you to take out a piece of paper. I'll collect them at the end and ask you, what are the differences? I suspect I'll get one or two answers, but you look like a pretty sharp crowd. You'll get the right answer. The difference is clear that one house doesn't collapse and the other house does. You see it here. Verse 25, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. 
Verse 27, it collapsed with a great crash. This is, the collapse here is total ruin. The collapse here in this text, there's no recovery from it. Feeling collapsed in this life, there's still recovery because there's a redeemer. The collapse in this life, there's no recovery. In this text, there's no recovering from it. This is total ruin. I guess another answer that someone may have given about the differences, they would have focused on the differences one's a fool and one is wise. And no doubt that's a difference. But I don't think that's the primary difference. And the reason it's not the primary difference is because the focus is not on the fool and the wise. It focuses on the foundation of the house. So what makes the difference between the two? It's not because one discovered the good things and the other one was too ignorant to find it. The difference is who builds the house? The difference is who builds my life and your life. And so how do, you, how do you know that's the difference in the text? Well, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine, the focus is on the speaker. The hope is in his voice, in his work, his promises, his character. How do you know that that's the difference? Because we're told it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. How do I know the difference? Because the, the foolish designation and the, righteous, the wise designation, these are attributions to these people because of their actions. These aren't, these aren't part of their nature. This is not who they are. These are just attributions. What's important here is... Do you hear his words? And do you build your life upon him? That's what's key. That's why this section ends the way it ends. Listen to the words again in verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's not a throwaway line. It's not a, just a mere record of history. It's not Matthew just saying, can you believe it? They paid attention to this four-hour sermon and they were astonished at the end and not complaining about the length of time and how they're going to get food. It's more than that. And for you and for me this morning, it's an invitation and the invitation is this, will you and I, will I and you, will we be astonished? That's the invitation. Will we be astonished at his teaching? This is precisely where Matthew wants you and me to be at the end of the sermon. But the problem is we're not astonished at the word very often. We've, we've domesticated the word. We're not astonished by it the way we should be. And the reason we're not astonished by it is because we don't believe that this is God speaking to us through the pages of Scripture. 
We, we could understand if we were, we would be astonished if he were there and we heard his voice, the quality of his voice, the, 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 the way in which he, his oratory abilities, the authority and the power in which we, we can understand that. But what we've forgotten is that when we read these pages, we're hearing the same voice. And Matthew wants you to hear that voice today. And he wants you to build your lives upon it. We too should be astonished by these words. You know why we should be astonished by these words? Because we are encountering the word. The living word in these words. And these words are pointing us to the person the word calls us to love and depend upon. What we see in this text is we have, we have the author of the word speaking to us. We have the author of the word speaking to us. And while he cannot be content with merely calling Jesus a good teacher or pointing to his good ideas or his good principles for living, we have to hear his authoritative voice and his call to live our lives under it. Jesus notes two qualities of the wise man. First, he hears the words of Christ in context of the Sermon on the Mount, and then he does them. He hears and he does. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man. James 1, verse 22 to 25 says, Be doers of the word, not merely hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer, he will be blessed in his doing. question is, do we believe that by hearing the words of Jesus, and following them that we will be blessed in our doing. The author of the words. He is the word. And he is about. He is what the word is about. My question to you is when you hear the word, is that where your mind goes? Does your mind go to first, this is who authored these words and to whom these words point? So the scriptures lift up God's word. That's why it says this is God's word. He is the author of these words and they point to someone. Matthew's gospel begins, son of Abraham, son of David. The gospel begins by pointing us to Him. The gospel ends by pointing us to Him. The Great Commission. All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Go make disciples. And I will be with you to the end of the age. Jesus' first teaching in the, in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. He says, these words point to me. He pulls the scroll back and he reads from Isaiah's prophecy. And he says, these words are being fulfilled in your presence because I am here. 
Luke, Luke 24, he's with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's, and he's teaching them how the Old Testament points to him and their hearts are warm. Do these words point you to him? If they point you to him, you're building your life on a rock. If these words don't point them to him, you may not be building your life on a rock. Just by following these words is not leading to wisdom, but by following the one who spoke these words, that is a life of wisdom. Which is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, I want you to hear, I want your hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, so that they may not, they may all have the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Last thing I want you to see here is this. The foundation. The foundation is called the rock. It's the rock. It's not a mere metaphor. I, th- I really believe. Well, no commentary that I read about this text says this. I really believe the rock is not a mere metaphor. The rock's a person. You go to Matthew chapter 16. Peter's confession. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Upon this rock, the rock that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this text should not point us to ourselves. It should point us to our teacher. Our teacher who is prophet, priest, and king. Our teacher who gave himself for us so that he may establish a kingdom to invite us into. Our teacher who says in Matthew chapter 12, Come all ye who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. A bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I will not blow out. My yoke is not too heavy for you. This text is not primarily about us. We don't primarily look at our feet and figure out how we're walking. This text primarily should set our eyes upon our teacher, the one who is proclaiming, who is the word, and to whom the word points. In application today, I encourage you to be astonished. You've heard the word of the Lord today. The one who's created you. The one who sent his son in your image. In your flesh. Who lived the life that you were to live and died the death that you were to die and was resurrected. Declared the son of God. And he is the first resurrection that one day you and I will follow him. He's identified himself with us. And you've heard his words today. And he's beckoned you to build your life upon it. First application is this, be astonished. Second application today is this. 
Do you believe he is a rock that's worth building your life upon? Is he who he says he is? Has he done what he says he has done? And will he do what he says he will do? Is he a rock willing, worthy of building your life upon? I believe that he is. Scriptures tell us that he sits on the throne and he will never be displaced. The Scriptures tell us that his heavenly Father is placing all things underneath his feet. The Scriptures tell us that one day he will come back for his people. Is he a rock worthy of our lives? And then finally this. If anyone walked in today and You've never met him. You've never heard his word before. Today he invites you to hear it. And he says this to you today. That there may be storms in your life and there may be a sense of collapse taking place, but I can restore it. I have built a kingdom and a kingdom that will never perish and never fade away. And I invite you into that kingdom. And to enter that kingdom today, you confess Him to be Lord. And confess that you have sinned against Him. And acknowledge that His work on your behalf has been sufficient. And he will be your King. And all that is His will be yours. And He, by His power, can restore your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word today. And we pray today, as we are challenged to be astonished, that even in these hours, in this hour, we would be astonished. That we've heard your word, and hearing your word has pointed us to the word. The one in whom our life resides. And Father, if there's anyone here today who's never given their life to him, they would see him as a trusted king who's building a kingdom, and that they're invited in. And it's in your son's good name we pray. Amen.